turn your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> we uh, enter into this section in 2 Corinthians this morning that uh, is unusual in the sense that Paul is going to cover a series of truths that's going to take us uh, about five sermons to work through these two chapters. And so it's actually really important this morning that I take some time right at the start to help you understand the layout of these two chapters uh, and then get into the first dominant truth that Paul is going to be addressing. And so uh, contrary to normal practice, I'm not going to read those first six verses of chapter three. We'll do that when we get about halfway through the sermon or so. But I want to help us to understand what we're looking at. It's, it's, it's so raw. It's so real from Paul. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's so easily identifiable for us to understand what he's wrestling through and what he's working through, uh, even a few thousand years removed. And certainly uh, none of us are apostles, none of us having been discipled by uh, the resurrected Christ specifically. And yet in Paul's rawness and in his openness and his transparency, uh, I think he gives us a great gift over these next two chapters and they really become foundational uh, to lots of understanding who Paul is and how he did ministry. It really helps to lift maybe some of the veil off of the life of Paul. Uh, and, and you start to see these kinds of threads of truths here what, that he's talking about, the way he thinks about ministry. You start seeing it showing up in his other letters and Romans and Galatians and Thessalonians in particular, even some there in, in Philippians. And so I really want to help us understand. So let's, let's start with thinking this way. Uh, first of all, uh, there are some things that you and I are just not able to do, right? And, and it's probably not a big deal. Uh, so maybe you can't juggle, not a big deal. It doesn't destroy you. You can't dunk a basketball, not a big deal. It's not the end of your life. You can't make a blueberry cake the way Dot Drake can. That's sad for you, unless you can get her to make you one, but, but that's not the end of the world, right? And, and so maybe you're not the best cook, maybe you're not uh, the best crafter, maybe you're not the best driver even, maybe you're not the best athlete, the best poet, the best reader, the best student, um, but it's not the end of all things for you. It gets demonstrably more difficult, though, if there's something you can't do that goes to the very core of you, who you are, of your identity. If, if something happens in your life and suddenly you can't physically do what you used to do, or you can't even physically function the way others physically function, things get much more difficult. Um, you're supposed to be a good parent, but something happens in life medically or mentally or circumstantially, and you suddenly can't parent the way you should and would want to. You're supposed to be someone who cares for others. You're supposed to pay bills, and you can't. You're supposed to do. You're supposed to work. And, and these things are stripped away from you, and since they are a part of who you think of yourself as being, as part of your identity, it gets really, really difficult. We face this frequently, uh, or folks do, and we saw this at the end of Ecclesiastes, as we age, as we go through the aging process, we talked about it being a series of griefs and of losses, and it certainly feels that way. I think it feels that way in parenting uh, when you're, there are these release points for your children and, and you're letting the arrow go, and every one of them just honestly feels like a little death every time. Some of them feel like big deaths. 
Um, as you go through seasons of life and, and suddenly you can't function the way you used to, and, it, and it's who you were, it's really, really difficult. Uh, if you want to insight into that, uh, there is some language in it, and so I, I'd caution you, but The Last Dance is a series uh, produced about Michael Jordan winning his sixth title, and there's a lot of interviews with him, and you absolutely get this sense and idea, this understanding uh, that Michael is struggling with the letting go of what he used to be able to do and what he can now no longer do. All of these chapters, chapters three and four, get to that same idea. The idea of being insufficient. Now, as these things begin to happen in your life or my life, we have this voice inside of us that's constantly telling us, for almost everybody, you can't do that. Now, the real problem arises it's part of your identity, who you really think of yourself as being. And someone else has added to that voice. In my early teenage years, I was wrestling tremendously with the concept of do my parents love me or not? And at a mission-critical moment, standing in Johnny Cake Junior High School, talking about something wholly unrelated to my parents, one of my friends looked at me and he said, how do you actually know your parents love you? And what he didn't know, and I, and I absolutely believe in that moment, it was as the voice of Satan, was my heart immediately thought, I don't and I can't. And, and it set me, rocketed me on a journey uh, from that point forward. Or what do you do with the little girl who is told you're not pretty enough? Or the little boy is told he's not smart enough? These voices become dominant in your brain and your heart. And I know I'm treading on tender ground for some this morning. But this concept, this idea of I'm not enough. Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is terrible. He is a murderer. He has chased down Christians and martyred them. He's an arrogant enemy of God. He's a traitor to the kingdom itself before he gets saved. And suddenly God saves him, God makes him an apostle, uh, and, and he's supposed to now go out and start these churches. And one of the churches he starts, and gives 18 months of his life to, and lots of his affection to, and Corinth now has lots of things to say about him. And what are they saying about him? They're saying, you're not good enough, you're not skilled enough, you're not smart enough, you're not a good enough preacher, you're not godly enough, you're not pure enough. You know what, you're not good enough to be an apostle. There's a song out there now, a popular song. One of the lyrics is, fear is a liar. I think that's a true lyric, but I think you could also change that lyric to shame is a liar. Shame of our past. Shame of our inadequacy. Shame of our insufficiencies. Shame that becomes our excuse for why we won't stand for truth, or why we won't exhort others, or why we won't evangelize the lost, or why we won't encourage the righteous, or why we won't speak loud blessing to others, or why we refuse to sing loudly during worship. I'm not a good enough singer. I don't know enough to be able to disciple them. They won't listen to me anyway. I'm not smart enough. I'm not skilled enough. I'm not trained enough. I'm not enough. I'm insufficient to do that which God has called me to do. Well, in the world, the answer is become more of you. Work harder. Try not to believe the lies. Put your nose to the grindstone, uh, pull up your britches, and get back to work. Wash your face, dry your eyes, and get back to doing what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, Cut the people out of your life who say that you're not enough. 
And that's really hard to do when it's the in voice inside of you <laughs> shouting that. But in the spiritual realm, I think it's really easy to see, and, and biblically, I would apply it outside of just the spiritual because it affects all of our life. We know that that's not the answer. Paul just becoming more of him is not going to solve this problem. You becoming more of you is not going to solve the problem. And into that struggle, into that moment of insufficiency and accusations comes 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4. In a very large way, in a big picture way, they are all answering the question that he asked in verse 16 of chapter 2. In the midst of talking about this uh, journey of, of triumph and being a, a sweet aroma of life to the living and death to the dying, he says, who is sufficient for these things? And so Paul is trying to answer that question. He takes two chapters to answer just that question. Who is sufficient for this? He knows as he asks that, he's revealing his own heart. We saw him expose some of that heart in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said this, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Sorry for the mispace there. But Paul had his own chasing thoughts about his standing, his apostolic standing. And it's been exaggerated by the Corinthians' accusations. I'll tell you, and maybe you've had this experience too, it is painfully difficult. And I've had this moment happen a few times in my life when you're sitting in a, in a, in a situation, in a meeting, in a car, maybe you're on the phone with somebody, and you have these raging insecurities about yourself. And then someone says the same thing to you about you. Those are devastating moments. I know very few people that are not affected deeply by those moments, right? There's always that kid in school that thinks it's his mission to point out everyone's physical flaws. As a little boy, I was always worried about how big my ears were. I couldn't care less now, right? As a little boy, I was, I was worried about that, and my barber cut my, my hair, and it's this old guy named Chuck, um, he had the old school barber shop. It was so old school when they filmed mob movies. I'm not kidding you. They'd film mob movies set, supposed to be set in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. They actually would rent his barber shop and film in his barber shop because it hadn't changed since then. I think it had the same dirt in it from then. I remember one time Chuck's cutting my hair and he's like, man, I got to be careful over here. I don't want to cut one of these bad boy sales off. I was already insecure about my ears. And I went to school and it was like that week, um, some kid made a comment about how big Steve's ears were, right? And then my grandpa, my grandpa, known for his tact and delicacy, showed up at his house one time and he said, man, you look like a taxi cab coming down the street with both doors open. My ears. So by the time I was 14, <laughs> poor kid made a comment to me about my ears in science class. And he suffered... <laughs> The, all the angst and anger pent up from little Steve about my ears. I bet there are things about you right now that someone pointed them out about you. They're devastating. And what I've learned over the years is you could be the star of the basketball team and the head of the cheerleading squad Everyone else convinced of your beauty, 
And we all have these raging insecurities. The most skilled, the smartest, the prettiest in the room still struggle. But when it's spiritual, and so then God has told you to do things. He's told me to do things. He's told us to go disciple. He's told older to teach the younger. And he, he's told dads to leave their homes. And he's told moms to nurture and care spiritually for others, whether God's granted you personally the gift of children or not. And he, he's told us to be good friends. And he's told us to be good neighbors. He's told us to invest. But we don't feel smart enough. And we don't feel good enough. And we don't feel godly enough. And Paul is fighting all these internal ideas that are true about him. He can't change this. He can't go back in time and fix this. So what is the solution? What is equal to the task? Well, what is equal to the task is he actually needs a new identity. And that's exactly what a lot of people have figured out, right? That's why they'll go through maybe uh, high school, and they've been with the same school with kids since elementary school, and they feel insecure, and they go to college, and they create a whole new identity for themselves. They've, they've learned maybe that's the solution to it. They're one person at work, one person at work, another person at home. Paul understands it is an identity issue, but the real identity is if you're in Christ or not. That's the answer. And so Paul even answers his own insecurities in the next verse in 1 Corinthians, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul is asking, who is sufficient for these things? This is actually spiritual warfare in our lives. Digging a little deeper, gritting your teeth a bit more, wiping your eyes, washing your face, and pressing on anyway will not work. And so Paul is saying, who is really sufficient for this? He needs a new identity. He says, my identity needs to be Christ. The answer is Christ in us, Christ with us, Christ beneath us, and Christ before us, Christ beside us. Christ in us all the time. I need a new identity. I need to come to the reality that the most important thing about me is am I in Christ or not? And there I can find ultimately my sufficiency. And so Paul then captures this through chapter 3 and 4 in the concept of the new covenant. Now, that, that seems a strange leap for us. It, how do we get from all my insufficiencies, who's, insufficient, who's sufficient for these things, to the new covenant, and how are their answers there? And because Paul is going to argue there are five gifts from God that every believer receives as a result of the new covenant that answers all these feelings of inadequacies. That's an amazing truth. Yes, I am, I am making the claim to you this morning that the answer in large part for your insecurities and your senses of insufficiencies guaranteed spiritually, but I would make the case and the claim this morning that in every area of your life are found in their answer in the new covenant. And so chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians should become a critical component of your understanding of your own life and of the gospel itself and your discipleship of others. And so there's so much there to unpack. There's terms, though, that we have to understand, terms we've got to know before we get into it. So first of all, this term sufficiency, let's just define that a little bit tighter. It's measuring up to a responsibility. That's the way Paul uses the language, and that's the way we want to understand the term. Uh, that's, that's an important delineation, right? Like, um, we're not going to be chasing a feeling of sufficiency in front of others. Paul realizes a truth that you and I all need to grasp. I cannot reconstruct my life in such a way out of an attempt to please others. 
I can't. I've got to look somewhere else. I've got to work much harder somewhere else than trying to reconstruct and get a new hairdo so my ears don't stick out as bad, right, as a little kid, because we know that that definitely isn't happening at this point in the game, Um, right? Like, Like looking prettier or getting smarter or so that someone will come along and say, you're enough. I hate to say this to you, but it's incumbent upon me to pop that bubble. There will never, ever be enough affirmation from others to fill up your deep, dark, empty well of feelings of insufficiencies and inadequacies. Those voices will always be there. The answer comes from somewhere else. The answer comes from Christ. And so how do we, when we talk about sufficiency here, Paul's talking about a sense of measuring up. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he uses this word, this language, in the reverse way. He sees Jesus and he says, I am not worthy. It's, it's actually, I am not sufficient. I'm not enough. But he is enough. The answer to, like, all my preaching of repentance, John the Baptist saying, all my baptizing people, all my standing up to the Pharisees, all my standing up to the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel, my enemies is not enough. We need something else. We need the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, he's enough. He's going to find sufficiency somewhere outside of him. The centurion has a servant at home, and the, the servant's dying. And so he sends word to Jesus, will you come and heal my servant? Um, and so uh, Jesus, or will you heal him? Jesus says, I'm going to come. Centurion says, you don't need to come. I'm a man under authority. And this is interesting what the centurion says. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come to me. I'm a man of great influence, of great importance, of great power, of great authority. I'm not worthy. But you are. Because you must be God himself. Jesus is astounded and says, no one has had faith like this man. Sufficiency, then, is the full requirement to meet the need. Sufficiency is everything we need to do that which God has called us to do. Sufficiency is a full satisfaction of anything that is lacking. Do you ever feel, I'm going to narrow that, do you ever feel insufficient for ministry? You don't feel like you know enough to disciple. You don't feel gifted enough, knowledgeable enough. You don't feel skilled enough. You don't feel like there's enough within you to provide care for someone else or compassion to someone else or comfort to someone else. You won't call them because you're terrified because you don't know what you're going to say to them. Even though every fiber of your being says you should call them. You know you should disciple. You know you should lead spiritually in your home. But you don't feel skilled enough. And you let those moments, those feelings that convinced of I'm not enough to actually keep you from doing what God has called you to do. You don't feel like you can be used by God because you don't measure up. And maybe, like Paul is unveiling in 1 Corinthians 15, it's because of the things you've done in your past. God could never use me that way because you still carry about you those feelings of shame 
And so you're not enough. God can't work through me. He doesn't want to work through me. I'm, I'm the one everybody else has loved and is in, and I'm the one that's kind of on the fringe, and I'm the wallflower, wallflower to the great party. I, I live thinking that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I'm going to be the dude way down to the table, and that's going to be, God, God's just going to kind of like, okay, I'm glad he's way over there. I'm, I'm the strange family member nobody's going to want to sit with or be. I'm not like anybody else in this room. Um, we, we will, and, and it's, it's fascinating the way we do this, but we will find all kinds of things about ourselves that remove us from a community by convincing ourselves we don't measure up, even though God has called us to come into community to love and to serve others. But we convince ourselves people endure us rather than delight in knowing us. It's my prayer, whether that is a passing struggle for you or a dominant issue of your heart, that chapters three and four would help, to help you to understand and would convince you of your sufficiency in Christ. It's an important term for you to know. Secondarily, I'm going to talk a lot about the new covenant in the weeks ahead. Now, that is a complex theological term uh, that we will unpack more as we go along, but we at least have to have some basic understandings of what we're talking about when we say the new covenant. So let me define it. The new covenant is the promise of God to save his people through Christ. That's, that's the most basic understanding. It's the promise of God to save his people through Christ. Now, it stands in contrast to what we know as the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. So there's a couple of defining issues there for us. The old covenant is given it to Israel at Mount Sinai and uh, Moses goes up on the mountain. God says, these are going to be my people. It's the establishment of them as a nation under the law, the Mosaic law. Primarily, it was intended to show us our sinfulness. There's lots of intricacies there with the old covenant, right? Everybody in Israel was part of, under the old covenant, saved or lost. And so under the old covenant, you had a mixed bag of people. Um, under the old covenant, all the little Hebrew boys and all their servants and anybody, any male that came into the nation was circumcised as a sign of the covenant. But you could receive the sign of the covenant and not actually be a follower or believer. Part of the wilderness wanderings proves that to us, right? How often do you see people just ultimately rebel against God, Korah and others, and God smites them and kills them and judges them? Uh, he judges an entire generation for their lack of belief and their lack of faith. And so under the old covenant, there was this mixed bag of people. Under the new covenant, none of that's true, because the new covenant is given to humanity by Christ. We see it in so many ways. We see it in Luke twenty two twenty. Jesus sitting at the, what we call the Last Supper, he's instituting communion, and he says, likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, Jesus speaking, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so Jesus establishes the new covenant, and the new covenant is markedly different from the old covenant. The old covenant is marked by the law and condemnation and shows sinfulness. The new covenant is marked by grace and forgiveness. The old covenant constantly showed you you could never be enough. The new covenant says, you're right, you're not enough, but Jesus is. The, under the old covenant, it was a mixed bag of believers and lost people. Under the new covenant, not so. God's people are now defined not by their nationality, because in fact, he's on mission to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but they're defined as his people who are all only 
saved people. So the signs of the new covenant are only for believers. And so baptism and communion, which are markers, reminders of the new covenant, are only intended for Christians to partake in. The new covenant shows us God's forgiveness. We can see it uh, throughout the text of the New Testament, but Paul spends a lot of time showing us the differences in the book of Galatians, which if this is something you haven't studied before would be worth some investigation for you. In Galatians 3.23, he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so then he explains, well, the law was no good, right? The law was bad. No, so then the law was our guardian. Old King James used to use the word schoolmaster, pedagogos. It's a, uh, a pedagogos was a slave that a very wealthy person would hire to be the schoolmaster. This is, this is <laughs> um, homeschool moms get this, right? It's hard, to, it, it's hard to be any kind of, it's hard to be a homeschool mom, right? You are mom, and so you're supposed to be like baking chocolate chip cookies or whatever, you know, culture says moms are supposed to do. You're supposed to be feeding family, running your home, and you're also your kid's teacher. And so it's really, one of the, one of the things that's really hard about it is being constant disciplinarian six and a half, seven hours a day while trying to be mom. It really can be, it can be very, very difficult, and different children relate to that differently, and, and so it's really hard. And so moms, there are times they call the principal. I don't know if that ever happened. And this, in John's Academy, right? There's sometimes principal got a phone call to handle the business. And that's as close as we can get to the pedagogos. What a pedagogos would have been like if it was a really wealthy family, they said, I'm going to pay somebody and they're going to crack your knuckles. The pedagogos actually carried a long, thin reed that they used like a whip. So this kid is not doing their time test for math. The pedagogos is standing back there, uh-huh, quack, that kid get a little sharp rap, and he said, let me get back to it. That's what he says the law was. The law was a hired slave to whip us to show us there's lots we don't know and we're not doing right. The law was our guardian until Jesus came in order that we might be justified by faith. See, the old covenant is constantly showing us our sinfulness and our wickedness. For the first moment then, because you'll start to see some of these in the text. Look in your Bibles at 2 Corinthians 3. I just want to show you because this is what Paul's referencing. And there's lots we're going to unpack here in just a few moments. But he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Quick passing. I'll do that in a minute. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's new covenant language. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ our, toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul is expecting them to know their Old Testament really, really well because Paul is uh, quoting in part Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
Under the old covenant, there was this external law giving direction to everyone. Under the new covenant, there's the presence of the Holy Spirit. All the law is summarized in Galatians in this phrase, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of love that believers under the new covenant exist under. And so Paul is beginning to use this new covenant language to explain his sense of sufficiency. Do you wonder how God could use you? Do you wonder how to endure in seasons of failure, fatigue, and weak faith? Do you struggle with the concept of living out your identity in Jesus? Do you wonder ever what it means to have union with Christ? So it's really Christ in you, coming out of you. Then these chapters on the new covenant should be a particular blessing for you. Third phrase you've got to know that helps structure these two chapters is this phrase, we have. Through the new covenant, we have. This verb phrase is repeated five times, and it introduces a new truth under the new covenant each time in these two chapters. And here's what they all are. These will be the structures of the sermons as we move forward over the next few weeks. He's going to say, first of all, we have confidence. Then he's going to say, we have hope. He's going to say, we have ministry. He's going to say, we have this treasure, and we have the spirit of faith. If you ever wanted to know, how does Paul handle his own senses of insecurities? How does Paul wrestle through his own insufficiencies? How does he do that when he's actually dealing with people that are highlighting all the insufficiencies he already feels? This would be a little bit like when Moses tells God, I don't speak real well, I stutter. It'd be a little bit like Moses, we know he's carrying this sense of insecurity and insufficiency, yet God has called him to do the work, so God says, okay, I'm going to send Aaron with you. Uh, and then he shows up in front of Pharaoh, and it'd be like the first thing Pharaoh said, says to Moses is, is like, why are you talking to me? You stutter, and you don't talk so well. He already has all these raging senses of insufficiency. And so Paul, how is Paul wrestling through them? So we should not think of Paul as some super saint who doesn't wrestle like you and I wrestle. What chapters 3 and 4 tell us is how he theologically works through it. How does he deal with it then? And so chapters 3 and 4 are like a course on how a believer should deal with their senses of insufficiency. This we have is all to answer who is sufficient. The answer is I have my sufficiency in God because in the new covenant I have these five things. Our core truth then is we're going to work through this morning in particular, on just this concept of we have confidence, it's going to be this. We press on a new covenant ministry because we're confident in God's work in us and through us. We'll look at it in three ways. The focus of our confidence, the presence of our confidence, and the growth of our confidence. And I'm confident we can do that in the time we have left. So, chapter 3, I'm going to read these six verses again. Now you understand what he's doing. He's answering it. Are we sufficient? Who's sufficient for these things? Um, now you understand. I'm just going to make a few comments as we go through the text here, and then we'll unpack these three. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? He's referencing the first century practice of when you sent somebody, and, you, and, if, and those that are maybe a little more familiar with the New Testament, remember that Paul would do that. He would send people with a letter of recommendation. So 
the people knew Paul, but they didn't know Timothy or Titus or Luke or somebody else. And so he'd write a letter of recommendation or introduction. Uh, I, Paul, am sending Titus to you. I recommend him as a co-laborer in the Lord with me. He is to be a trusted resource and elder among you. And he'd give it to Titus. And they'd recognize Paul's handwriting or, or maybe uh, his seal, a stamp of some kind. And it would be a letter of introduction or recommendation. And it's a little different in the first century because it was a relational start too. And it was a little bit, maybe the closest we could get is social media today. If you happen to be on Facebook or something like that. When a friend of a friend of yours requests to be your friend. Or you even realize, hey, we have, we have a mutual friend. How do you know them? Well, I know them from here. Oh, you do. I know them from over here, right? Like, and it's just kind of this weird crux of a thing. And it starts, that, that mutual companionship, that triangle, trifecta of it, suddenly helps you jumpstart a friendship. That's the way it operated. Well, Paul showed up in Corinth with none of that. They didn't know who Paul were, was from Adam. Here, Paul shows up preaching the gospel, But now these super apostles have shown up probably with self-produced letters of recommendation. We say that because they're so hypocritical and liars later in the book, they're not to be trusted. So whether they showed up with a letter saying like from James, uh, pastor of church in Jerusalem, but they didn't really know James. And they showed up in Corinth and said, we can be trusted because we have these letters of recommendation. And some of the people in Corinth are saying, but you're not saying the same things as Paul. And they said, really? Where was Paul's letter of recommendation? And some of the people in Corinth are like, they make a good point. And Paul's a little bit like, what? You don't even know Jesus if I didn't preach to you. That's my letter of recommendation. But then some people say, see that? Paul's arrogant and thinks we should trust him just because it's him. That's what he's saying in this language here. So do, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, it's like, have we reversed in our relationship that I have to prove to you once again who I am? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? <laughs> like, like I, do I need your approval now to function as an apostle? He says, you yourselves are letters of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. It's a stunning statement because what he's saying is, rather than needing to take a piece of paper that shows that we're trustworthy, the sheer fact that you know Jesus should show that we're trustworthy. This sheer fact I spent 18 months with you, that I've, I've now written four letters to you, and I've come and visited you, and I've been mistreated by you, but I keep chasing you, that should be enough for you. It's, it's like um, sometimes, a, a, and it usually happens around teenage years, but so it's not, not all teenagers do this, um, but it's not uncommon either for a teenager to kind of look at their parents like, prove to me you love me. Uh, I... I <laughs> I was sitting in one counseling situation, and a parent looked at the child and said, the sheer fact you're alive, like, you don't live, you're, you don't live and breathe and walk and talk without me. Um, and, and that's kind of what Paul's saying a little bit. Maybe not with that edge, right? But he's saying, you're the proof. And you show you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. So he's saying, it's like Jesus is wanting to commend something, Maybe the, 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 the ministry of Paul. And so the way of Jesus to commend Paul to others has to do with Paul's fruitful ministry among them. Paul can be trusted because we've seen Jesus at work in him and through him. Now he uses this new covenant language. Not with ink. 
And his implication is ink can be manufactured or blotted out. But with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone like Moses in the wilderness, but on tablets of human hearts. That's an unchangeable reality. Remember, the, the first tablets were even broken in Moses' anger. They, they could be destroyed. They're twisted by the Pharisees. But human hearts, God carves it into heart. You're saved. You can't lose it. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. In other words, Paul doesn't even base his sense of sufficiency on the Corinthians, but on God in him coming out of him, who has made us sufficient, made us enough to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Confidence is a uniquely Pauline term. He's the only one who uses that term in all the New Testament. Shows up the majority of the times here in Corinthians, but also shows up, I believe, in Ephesians, Galatians. What is, what, how do we understand that? Understand that word this way. It's this summertime and a dad is in your neighborhood HOA pool trying to convince his kid to jump off the side of the pool at him, right? And so the kid doesn't want to do it and um, you know, they lean forward and they just like lean into their arms. That's not a jump. And so the dad is trying to build confidence, build confidence, build confidence. And eventually the dad keeps backing up further and further and further till that kid has to jump to arms. And finally, you see the kid doing that, and then you go back later in the summer, and you see this kid just running to the edge of the pool and leaping full on into the pool. This is my nephew, Isaac, who has more confidence than he should, because he can't swim. And, and I watched my, my sister-in-law have to deal with Isaac trying to jump into our neighborhood pool uh, this past summer, and he keeps jumping, and she's like, you need some floaties on, you know, which is the definition of cool when you're four. Um, and he don't want anything to do with those nasty floaties. So he's just like jumping in the deep end, his brother and sister. She's like literally having to snatch him. It's a good thing he got long blonde hair. Snatch him out so he don't drown sputtering and all this. And my wife and I are sitting there watching. We're like, oh, that taught him his lesson. Heidi turns around. And she's almost like, watch this. He runs right to the deep end again. I'm like, oh, my word, this kid. And then she looks at me. That's why we call him little Steve. Like, that's just not right. It's true. It's true, but it ain't right. Confidence. And so think of the kid, though, that maybe they've learned and now they can do it. They're confident. Paul's saying that confidence doesn't come because I have a master's degree. Confidence doesn't come because of me. That confidence, what God has called me to do, is not sourced in my abilities, my skills, or your affirmation, because they ain't getting a lot of affirmation from the Corinthians. Where does it come from? And so what is the focus of the confidence? The focus of Paul's confidence is Christ. Paul is not thinking, some of you are familiar with the old Saturday Night Live character, Stuart Smalley. He's made fun of uh, motivational speakers and mental health gurus he, he's this guy who sits in front of a mirror and he's always saying things you're smart enough and you're good enough and people like you um, and he's got to say these things to him and, and the funniness of the skits would always be um, I've done a terrible show and I'm a horrible person no one likes me no 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 you're good enough and you're smart enough and people like you is that what he has to do as though his struggles can be solved by positive thinking I've told you before, as uh, a young 
preacher sitting uh, and in churches in the context I preached at that time, there'd be altar calls and sitting there and, and praying that people would go forward as though that was a stamp that somehow God approved of the sermon I just preached. That you're good enough or, or wearing my emotions on my sleeve and so needing affirmation after ministry, after counseling or discipleship or preaching, that someone say that was a good sermon and like it. Is that how Paul operates? No. Paul is referencing this even in Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Changing how he feels about himself will not be the answer. Paul needs someone or something outside of himself. In other words, Paul needs this new identity. Paul finds that new identity in the reality of being a believer. There are only two biblical identities. Either you are in Christ or you are not. The theological terminology we use for that is the phrase union with Christ. It is a reference that is Christ in us, coming out of us, Christ all around us, the presence of his spirit within us, even empowering us. The reality of the union with Christ has all kinds of facets and dynamics. But the focus of our confidence is our union with Christ. This is astoundingly difficult to live out in real terms. Because when you and I will do ministry with people and they don't like it or they reject it, I've yet to ever, ever have someone say, I don't like what you said or I don't like how you said it or I don't agree with what you said or I don't agree with how you said it because I don't like what Jesus says. They never say that. Now, okay, so I'm using never. I'm, to be clear, 20 years experience has never, ever ever happened they always will fault you just like they're doing with paul i don't like that jesus calls us to discipline people out of the church paul is wrong that's not how they say it they think this way jesus would never want us to discipline him out of the church because we love this guy and we're going to show grace to him even though he's sleeping with his stepmother and paul's a baddie and Paul's mean. Paul's a meanie head, and we don't want to follow Paul. They will always put it on the person. They won't identify it with God. This is really important for you to live in the reality of, because you could do ministry perfectly in a situation. And if someone's going to reject it, they're going to find a way to blame you. Paul knows then the answer can never be, can never be, you or I believing if I was just smart enough, wiser enough, did it just this way, then I would have had a different outcome. That's not reality. And if you try to live there, you're going to run yourself into the ground in ministry or you'll stop doing ministry altogether. Because you're going to hate the rejection and the frustration of it. And I dare say in this moment, is it even possible that maybe in there's, there's seasons or areas of your life where you don't do the things God has called you to do because of that? You don't want the rejection. You don't want the harm. You don't want the heartache. And so Paul says the focus of our confidence is a believer's union with Christ. He then fleshes that out in a number of ways in Romans 12. 
He says you can know this because of the spiritual gifting God has given you. You can know it because of the Christian community you live in, weeping with those that weep, rejoicing with those that rejoice, caring for one another, forgiving one another, forbearing one another. Those are all markers of Jesus is at work in you. Like I can tell Jesus is at work in me because of the spiritual gifts he's given. I can tell Jesus is at work in me because of the Christian community he's called me to be a part of. I can tell that Jesus is in me. He's, I'm union with Christ because of how he's called me to deal with lost people. And so I'm not out to destroy my enemies, but I'd even feed and clothe them if they were naked and they were in desperate need. And I don't have to be on mission to avenge myself. I can trust God and, and I can be merciful to those who do me wrong. And I can pray for others who despitefully use me and who persecute me. And and that's not natural, right? Because if somebody hurts me, I want to clock them back. And so the only restraint suddenly becomes a product of the presence of Christ in me. And so Paul says, I have a confidence because of union with Christ. Romans 12 unpacks with you some ways you could know you have union with Christ. The focus of our confidence is our union with Christ. Let's talk about the presence of confidence. The presence of our confidence. The theological truth doesn't stand alone. Because that sounds very mental. And it is. It is believing truth, which is part of sanctification. Sanctification, in large part, at its start, is you putting away lies that you believe and replacing them with truth. Not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4, not thinking like the Gentiles think, but now thinking under the truth and the power and the reign of the gospel. So it does begin with theological thinking. So I'm gonna start and I'm gonna approach life this way in all these areas where I'm feeling insufficient and insecure, and I'm gonna live in the reality that I'm union with Christ, and so that I'm actually gonna believe this. How does God see the ministry he's calling me to do? How does God see the way I'm called to husband or the way I'm called to friend or the way I'm called to parent or the way I'm called to pastor because it's a responsibility, it's not my identity. How I'm called to neighbor. How does God see this? Well, when I'm doing it in the power of Christ, God the Father is not looking at Steve saying, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not skilled enough. Because that's not how he relates to his son, is it? Because I have union with Christ, even when the voices inside are shouting, you're not good enough, smart enough, wise enough, skilled enough, holy enough, righteous enough. And maybe even voices from without will make all those same accusations. I know that I have union with Christ and God looks upon his son and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But God knows that we need more than just truth thinking. And so Paul tells us practical ways that he sees the presence of Christ. And he sees it in two dominant ways. There are two key practical realities that will build confidence in Christ in the believer. This is huge. Number one, the weak are made strong. Remember this old comic at the back of comic books? A few of you of my generation, back at G.I. Joe comic books, Chuck Atlas, there's always the kid on the beach, gets sand kicked in his face, goes home, gets the Chuck Atlas routine. Arr! Paul says, I'm confident in Christ because weakness, my weakness, is becoming God's strength. You can see it in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul has experienced power in ministry. 
Paul knows what it's like to be weak. Before Christ in his life, Paul felt very strong, but now he feels very broken and weak. But Paul has seen and felt God put strength in every stride. His sufficiency isn't in him, it's the Spirit in him. Christmas time, me and uh, my kids and my brother-in-law and his kids, and we were all driving to go play disc golf up in um, Greenville area. And we're driving on the way there. My father-in-law wanted me to drive his new, he got a new Kia SUV. And he's like, Steve, why don't you drive? I'm like, yeah, I'll drive. So I'm driving. I got my sons in the back. And we're driving. And I'm following my brother-in-law, Ben. And Ben makes one of those quick lane changes with low warning. And I'm tr- I put my blinker on, and the guy next to me is not going to let me in. He was one of those people. You know what I'm talking about. I slow down, he slow down. I speed up, he speed up. He was rolling that way. Oh, no, sir. So I duped him. I slowed down a little bit, slowed down, I saw his car, so I slowed down, and then I jammed it. I dropped the pedal, sped up, whipped right around the dude, it was perfectly safe, I used my blinker and everything. I'm like, ha-ha! My father-in-law's sitting there, silent, because he ain't going to talk when I'm driving like that. I'm driving, I'm feeling good now, suddenly from the back seat, my nephew says this. I never thought I'd see Honey and Pappy's car driven like that. I'm like, that's right. Sometimes you don't know the power that's in you until you're put in a situation where you need it. And some of us don't have any confidence in the power of Christ because we avoid ministry contexts that would require it of us. And so your lack of sufficiency is rooted in fear and in laziness. And I want you to know, Paul says, I have confidence because not of me, but because of what I've seen God do in and through me, because the weak are made strong. But secondarily, because Paul has seen hearts of stone made hearts of flesh. Paul has experienced himself and he's seen the gospel enter into a person and transform their heart. His own heart has experienced this new life, this inner presence of the spirit, this redemption of a very lost man, Paul has confidence because he has seen the power. He has seen the transformational power of new covenant ministry. He knows the power of Christ's love and acceptance and calling. The power isn't his to make stone hearts, hearts of flesh. It isn't his education, his wisdom, or his oratory skills. It's the gospel itself. His confidence is that God loves to unleash His power through the word shown and shared with the lost and struggling. He says it this way because he says the spirit gives life who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. We press on in new covenant ministry because we're confident of God's work in us and through us. Lastly, and we'll be all done. How do you grow confidence then? Well, some of it is evident. First of all, as you grow in your understanding of union with Christ, you want to grow in confidence, you need to spend some time studying some of the practical outworkings of it in Romans chapter 12. What is my spiritual gift? How do I use my spiritual gift? Where are some ways that I can do that? How do I relate to the Christian community? Because as you relate to others, you're going to be put into situations where you have to forbear and forgive, where you have to minister and care, you have to weep and you have to rejoice, you have to sacrifice and you have to serve, and suddenly you'll start realizing that's not natural to you. 
and you need Jesus, and you'll start to experience the work of Jesus in you. And so it's living out the theological realities as we grow in our understanding of union of Christ, but secondarily as we serve well. There's this hidden gem that Paul writes about deacons in 1 Timothy 3.13. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? Well, first of all, that tells you that you can serve well or not serve well, and that's not just in the office of a deacon. You can serve well, you cannot serve well. And so what does it mean to serve well? Well, the confidence is in faith in Christ. That tells us because you serve like Jesus would serve. It starts to grow your confidence because serving others is sacrificial and intentional. It's thinking about other people and not yourself. It's not natural to you or me. At some point, now, I don't know if you thought about this, but would you, would, you probably would not want to be on the short list to be one of the deacons in the early church, right? Because the church at that point is saying, all you apostles are a bunch of racist, selfish people because you won't feed the Grecian widows. And the answer from God is, we need deacons. You want to be on the list of that dude? Oh, so basically now I want to step into the role of being a buffer between these quick-to-accuse, think-evil people of leaders, let me be a leader. I don't think so. Why would you do that? Really only one reason, because this is what Christ has enabled, empowered, and given you the opportunity to do. Confidence grows as you serve. Confidence grows as you're put in positions when it's not natural to you, and it has to be the Spirit empowering you. How do you serve when people are ungrateful? How do you serve when service goes ignored or is minimized? Or people treat you like a servant because you're serving. You can either do it in the flesh or the spirit. If by God's grace you operate in the spirit, you are suddenly going to know in a very real and unusual way the kindness of God to empower you and be at work in and through you. This will grow your confidence. We never were going to know what the Kia could do until the Kia needed to do it. I don't have to say this to you. You are never going to know the power of Christ until you're in a spot where so obviously without the power of Christ, you will not be able to go on. Folks, God has me under his thumb. He has touched every area of my life. And every fiber of my being as your shepherd wants you to know the power of Christ because it tastes so good. Do not be afraid. And then thirdly, as we see fruit for the work. Now, that's fascinating because Paul points to the effect he's seen in the Corinthians even as they're rejecting him. And it tells us a couple things, I believe. It tells us that Paul didn't always see fruit, and so he'd had to learn how to be faithful in the face of seeming fruitlessness. But Paul had hope in the power of God to change them. He had seen some fruit. I think when we don't seem to be seeing big harvests, we need to take stock of little blessings. 
I think when we don't see what, what seem to be big harvest and it doesn't seem, it seems kept from us, we need to focus on what God is even doing in us and the fruit that he's bringing there. And the fruit that he's bringing in you and that he promises that in due season, Galatians 6, you will reap if you faint not. One gift of the new covenant is a sense of rest. That's what the word confidence actually means here. Rest. A sense of rest that comes as a result of being convinced of the power of God at work in you and through you. We press on a new covenant ministry because we are at rest. We are confident in God's work in us and through us.